Hi, everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast where we bring readers and writers together. We'll bring you writers that you've already heard of and love and and, uh, cherish, as well as writers you may not know, and uh, we hope that you'll look into them a little bit further. It's been an incredible week in the news. Anonymous, anonymous, anonymous. Um, You poor misguided soul. I don't know what to think about the anonymous op-ed that was released in the New York Times last week from a senior official in the Trump White House who claims that he or she and several of their colleagues have been working to thwart some of the president's more dictatorial desires and and movements. Um, It's a tough one. A lot of people have come out and called Anonymous a coward and said that he or she should resign and make themselves public and uh, tell us truthfully what is going on in the U.S. White House. But um, another way to look at this is this may not be only a matter of losing their job. A job is a job is a job, even at senior levels. This may also be a question of the president is ranting that this is treasonous, regardless of the fact that they do value free speech in the United States. Um, Treason carries with it the death penalty, potentially, as well as very long sentences in jail. This person may be actually in fear for their life. We just don't know. So it's very, very hard to judge Anonymous. I do personally wish that he or she would put his or her name onto this and end the speculation and come out and tell people exactly what's going on, because I think that knowing who it is would add a great measure of credibility, especially given the courage that it would take to come out. Um, I'm not about calling people cowards who are in situations that I can't even begin to imagine. But I do know it would take tremendous courage to come out and put your name onto something like this and um, to fall on the right side of history before history forces you to do so, which is another way to look at this, because a lot of people have accused Anonymous of simply trying to hedge their place in history. Um, Look, we tried to tell you, we tried to tell you things were not right, we're not at fault, while all all at the same time enabling the actions of this president. Um, And even though I haven't gotten intensely political on this program, I think reading between the lines, most of my listeners will know where I stand. And I've made no bones about publicly stating my my viewpoints for the last two years on this whole situation. Now, as a writer, and I'm speaking to writers here, you've got to follow your own conscience. When I first started making political statements, and they've always been gentle statements, I try not to get into big fights with people. I try not to engage on some type of um, verbal diarrhea level with anyone. But I have made my position clear for over two years now. And a lot of people said to me that as a writer, all you do is alienate half your own following. And that's probably true. There's probably a lot of truth in that. So as a writer or anyone in the arts, you've got to make your own mind up where you want to fall on this whole issue. But for me, history is really important. I wanted history to be really clear where I, Donna Carrick, the person, not the company, not Carrick Publishing, not Dead to Rights, but I, Donna Carrick, fall on this whole trend towards autocracy that we see going on in the world right now. 
And I'm going to say in the world at large, because the U.S. is not alone. They are certainly leading this trend right now, but we're seeing it here in Canada as well. As I was saying, we're seeing this trend here in Canada right now, too. And it is both maddening and saddening to see it because people, we've been here before. And the fact that young people don't remember and weren't taught is no excuse, um, Google is there to educate all of us. Please look up the Second World War. Look up fascism. Look up the rise of the Third Reich on Google. There is no excuse for ignorance in this. And I'm sorry, I simply cannot buy into people not seeing or being deliberately obtuse into where this may all be headed. So, Anonymous, I salute you for bringing this story out, but I I please, I urge you without judgment, if it's at all possible for you to find the courage to come out and put your name on this, I urge you sincerely to do so. I think it's so important. As a lifelong liberal, I, I do not ever hold hatred in my heart for conservatives. I know that there is a place for all of us in this society. There are times when it's necessary for society to lean to the left and to be progressive and to try to further the interests of common people and to try to make the world a better place. But there are also times when it is necessary for us to tighten our belts, to look to our fiscal responsibilities, to look to those sides of us that say, whoa, wait a minute, are we really going in the right way? Or are we becoming too politically correct? Are we insisting that everyone think alike, which is, um, it's really the anti-liberalism that, that sometimes plays into actual liberalism, and we've got to be very aware of it. And conservatives, our conservative friends and family members, can help us to do that, can help us to be real. We can all help each other be real. Um, so I hold no hatred in my heart for conservatives at all, but I do believe firmly that there are people at the top in every nation right now who are enabling these alt-right people who are looking to not just lead a conservative agenda, but who are actually looking to destroy the democratic principles that we all hold dear, that we have fought and shed blood for. And I think it's time for us to look historically at this. Um, that's what I've got to say to Anonymous. I know Anonymous is not likely listening to Dead to Rights, but um, maybe one of you listeners out there will pick this theme up and pass it on in a forum where Anonymous may actually see it. You never know. So if you agree with me, please tell five or 5,000 friends, and let's see if we can get through to Anonymous and um, give him or her our support rather than our hatred and rather than name-calling, and see if we can bring them out of their private now, that leads me to the new book that's come out this, uh, that is coming out Monday, actually. It's coming out Monday, September 10th, titled Fear, by the very renowned Bob Woodward of, um, of Watergate fame and uh, all the president's men. He was the partner who worked hand in hand with Carl Bernstein to break the case of Watergate and to bring Richard Nixon finally to some sort of justice, even though he was not going to be indicted. He was going to be impeached. In the end, he did not need to be impeached because he agreed to step down from his position as president of the United States. I can remember 
his resignation address. I witnessed it live. I was in my teens. I was at a KOA station with my family in Maine, outside of Bangor. My older sister, Debbie, and I had gone upstairs into the KOA rec center with a friend, and we were watching television when Nixon came on to break the news. Our friend was a little older than us. He was an American traveler that we had hooked up with, a very, very nice, very nice young man. And uh, we knew very little about the politics of it all. Of course, we were aware of the Vietnam War and of the lies that were being told and of these scenes, the horrific scenes on television that we were all seeing of the dead on the killing fields in Vietnam, which was something that had never happened in a war prior to that date. We were actually able to see the death and the destruction uh, because our friend was a little older and was very tuned into the U.S. political scene, he was able to explain to us why it was so significant that Richard Nixon was finally resigning. So at this point in history, I'm not sure what it teaches us. I think that uh, Richard Nixon is widely accepted to have been a criminal, although that was his famous line, I am not a criminal. I think it is widely accepted that he was a liar, that he was paranoid, that he was damaging, certainly, U.S. reputation on the world stage, and he was damaging the democratic principles within his own country. Having said all that, I don't believe he was a sociopath from what I've read. I don't believe that he was so far gone that he didn't know the difference between right and wrong, truth and lies. Certainly he lied a lot, and I'm not making excuses for him. He had enablers in his own cabinet who allowed him to continue with that, as we all know. What we're dealing with right now, in my view, and I'm going to say up front, I am not a psychologist, I am not a psychiatrist, but what I see, and from my readings and my research, especially my criminal um, psychology research, and I have read hundreds of profiles of real criminals to try to figure out what goes on in their heads, I don't think any of us really know how bad the mental scenery is within the mind of the current POTUS. I don't think any of us are equipped to gauge exactly how vile and exactly how malicious the intentions really are. Um, but I do think we should be warned. And so I have, of course, purchased, I've pre-ordered the book Fear by Bob Woodward, and I intend to review it in a future episode. I can't review it just yet. All I've heard is the same you've all heard, which is just the snippets that come out on the news from it. And they are quite intriguing. They are quite titillating. But before I can make any kind of commentary on a book, I have to have read it from cover to cover. I actually, I say read, but I've purchased the audible version. So it'll be the audible version that I'm reviewing. So stay with me for a future episode when I'll bring you that. That's my political scene for today, and um, what I want to do is I want to tell you a little bit about a movie that Alec and I watched last night called Fractured, starring Anthony Hopkins and Ryan Gosling. It was a quiet little movie. I'm not sure it's going to be on anybody's top 10 movies of the year list, but just by telling you the names of those actors, I think you can surmise how beautifully acted it was. It was a, an intricately constructed psychological thriller. Um, a man murders his wife. We all know who done it. 
But we also see that he has brilliantly set up his own case against the police. I'm not going to tell you more than that because it just, it devolves from that point onward and then reconstructs itself into something quite different. So if you're able, I, I, I really do, I do re highly recommend Fractured starring Anthony Hopkins and Ryan Gosling. It really is a taut psychological thriller and I think you'll enjoy it. Coming up for the rest of September, we have on September 16th an interview with Joan Hicks Boone, who is the author of The Best Girl, and will also be bringing you that day a short story by myself titled Axe Husband. I hope you like my little play on words. And that story appeared in North on the Yellowhead by Carrick Publishing. On September 23rd, we're going to bring you an interview with Tina Wolf, the author of Exacting Justice, and a short story by my friend, an exceptional writer by the name of Joan O'Callaghan, titled Runaway, and that first appeared in World Enough and Crime in 2014, which was an anthology brought out by Carrick Publishing. And then finally, on September 30th, I don't know yet what the story for that day is going to be, but I'm going to be bringing you an, a wonderful interview, which I just conducted this morning, in fact, with true crime author Nate Henley about his latest true crime book, The Boy on the Bicycle. And this is a book that I reviewed back on August 25th for our listeners, and I strongly recommend that you get a copy of it. It's not a long read, but if you're looking for something just to, to coast you through the fall and you want to learn something about real crime in Canada, this is the book to read right now. It's uh, hot off the presses. It's titled The Boy on the Bicycle by Nate Henley, and I had an exceptional interview with him this morning. I can't wait to bring it to you on September 30th. For today, September 9th, I'm going to be speaking with Kate Raphael, the author of Murder Under the Bridge, and our short story today will be Cover Girl by Melody Campbell from World Enough and Crime, Carrick Publishing, 2014. You'll notice that an awful lot of the short stories I bring you were actually by Carrick Publishing, and the reason is because I have the audio rights for those stories, so I'm sorry I can't bring you stories from the authors that I do speak with, uh, generally speaking, just because I don't have the rights. Um, going forward next year, I may try to handle the whole short story thing a little bit differently, just to get a broader spectrum. But for right now, I can only bring you stories I have the rights to, and I, I hope that you'll enjoy them because they're all outstanding stories. Today's story, Melody Campbell, titled Cover Girl, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Melody right now. The Toronto Sun called Melody Canada's Queen of Comedy. The Library Journal compared her to Janet Ivanovich. And if you haven't read Janet Ivanovich, and if you're looking for light, fun mysteries, I really do recommend her. For a long time, I read every book that came off the presses by Janet Ivanovich. Um, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed them all. Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine called Melody Campbell the Canadian literary heir to Donald Westlake. Melody Campbell has won 10 awards, including the Derringer in the U.S., the Arthur Ellis here in Canada, for The Goddaughter's Revenge. She got her start writing comedy, so no surprise her fiction has been described by editors and reviewers as wacky and laugh-out-loud funny. 
Melody has over 200 publications to her credit, including 100 comedy credits, 15 novels, 40 short stories, one of which shared a literary shortlist with Margaret Atwood, and I was actually there at that event, so I know that to be true. Her best-selling Rowena Through the Walls series was an Amazon Top 50 bestseller, putting her on the list between Tom Clancy and Nora Roberts, two other exceptional writers that I do recommend. The Goddaughter, a comic crime caper, received the following review from Library Journal. Campbell's comic caper is just right for Janet Ivanovich fans. Wacky family connections and snappy dialogue make it impossible not to laugh. And that was from the Library Journal, September 2012. Warning, the Rowena Time Travel Fantasy series is not sweet romance. It is sexy, funny, rollicking adventure series that started as a good-natured spoof of the series Outlander, which many of you will be familiar with. And now I'm going to read you Cover Girl. Editor's Note. With her customary wit, award-winning author Melody Campbell brings us this hard-hitting, hysterical story of how looks can indeed be deceiving. The door opened. And a big man who was all chest and no hair strode in, barking orders. I'm looking for Mel Ramon. You found her, I said. I find missing persons for a living. This one was easy, but I didn't think he'd pay me for it. He looked me over thoroughly, and it wasn't with approval. You? I nodded, swinging both legs off the desk. Mel, short for Melinda. Damn foolish name for someone in your line of work. I jerked myself straight. It's a foolish business, I said. Tony whined from the corner. The metallic squeal didn't help with the atmosphere. I plowed ahead before the lecture started. Can I do something for you, I said. <clears throat> like maybe straighten your nose, I thought. The man with the attitude threw a look at my bodyguard. Tony was doing some assessment of his own. His android head swung to the left, and he addressed me with details. Regulation Beretta, 9mm, semi-auto, left side, boot knives, both sides. I don't detect anything else, Melly. I winced at the Melly. Tony is the premier development of RBMN Robotech's new sensitivity line, protection with affection. That should read overprotection. Unfortunately, they goofed on the sensitivity part. He sounds like my mother. My assistant, I stated bluntly. He stays for protection. The big man nodded. This time he approved. I got the feeling he was familiar with the need for protection, like maybe people took regular aim at his face. It had that cross-me-and-I'll-break-both-your-legs appeal. I want you to find someone, he growled, throwing himself into the client chair. It squeaked in protest. In confidence, he added. I nodded and hit the record button under the lip of my desk. No beep, no whir. It's programmed mute. I've been away off-planet for nearly a year. Security work. Been incommunicado for the last month. Back on leave now. He paused, frowning in my direction. The eyes, which were half-closed, seemed to see a lot. Got back last night. Late. 
Got to the condo and it was empty. Not a sign. Not a single damn sign. I leaned forward. Of what? The eyes flashed open. Of my wife. I want you to find my wife. Tony clucked sympathetically from the corner. I pretended to jot down details. Basically, it came down to this. Mr. Military had just returned from secret assignment, and it appears his wife was away on an assignment of her own. No forwarding address. No sign of foul play. A suitcase was gone, but as far as he could tell, hardly any clothes. Which could mean a lot of things, or nothing. How much do men know about their wives' clothes? You checked at work? I asked. Of course. He glared at me as if I were some sort of brainless thing that fed on flies. First thing I did. They haven't seen her in a month. Say they don't know where she is. Won't release any information. She was expecting you? I asked. I'm ten days early, he said dryly. The room felt instantly colder. What does she look like, Mr... Gorgeous. She's gorgeous. Tall, slender, green eyes, long, dark hair. He paused, glancing at my Cleopatra hair. She looks a little like you. He reached into the breast pocket of his civilian jacket. A brown envelope, medium-sized, landed on the desk. I opened it and pulled out two photos, model proofs, full facial. I agreed with his assessment. She did look something like me, or rather what I would look like if I were gorgeous, which I'm not. I'd seen the face before, too, and so had everyone else on the planet if they had eyes in their heads. Not all of them do, of course. Inez Orchi hit the front cover of Vogue about five years ago and had yet to come off it. She had a face you couldn't miss, all aristocratic bones. You could starve for light years and still not get that effect. Three months back, the cosmetic firms were vying for an exclusive contract, so the rumors went. The fashion piranhas tripped over their high-priced heels in pursuit. Funny, I hadn't heard anything about it since. A throat rumbled clear. You'll want to check out the premises. Here's a passcard, the numbers at work, friends. Her mother's dead. I'll leave it to you. You can reach me at this number. He passed an envelope, this time white, and swung from the chair. I spoke quickly. About my fee. I know what you charge. Just find her, he said, turning away. Look, there may be... Just find her. I want her back. She'll come back if she knows I'm home. I'll call you as soon as I know anything, Mr. Orkchie. Backwith, came the roar from the doorway. Colonel Backwith. Orkchi is my wife's name. The door closed with a bang. I looked over at Tony and grinned. Oops. Two hours later, Tony was still whining. I don't like it, Mellie. I don't think we should take the case. Why not? And don't call me Mellie. I think he did it, Tony hissed. Did what? Did her in, knocked her over, snuffed her out. I sighed. Have you been watching late-night movies again? I was going through massive closets in the Orkchi bedroom. 
Everything in the bedroom was huge, including the bed, which was a thought. Boyfriend, I mused. Boyfriend? Oh, come on, Tony, it's gotta be. Run off to be with a man. I'll bet my last credit. The husband thinks so, too. That's why he's so grumpy. But why she would leave these behind, I can't imagine. It was hard not to want all the things in that closet. Row upon row of designer samples and runway cast-offs. Not a thing older than last season. A girl would sell her own mother for this bonanza. Maybe even her robot. How do I look in chartreuse? I held up a pile of chiffon to my face. Avocado, not chartreuse, he corrected, and you shouldn't be touching other people's clothes. You don't know where they've been. I sighed. These cost a fortune. Do you have any idea how big the fashion industry is? Two hundred and thirty trillion four hundred and seventy two billion eight hundred and ninety eight million seven hundred and twenty thousand credits. And that's only on this planet, I twirled the chiffon. Quite an empire. Really, the fashion mavens have us enslaved. Tony's head tilted sideways. I mean it, I said. One model slinks down the runway in fuchsia plastic, and the rest of us about kill ourselves trying to replace our whole wardrobes. Absurd, Tony shook his head. Big business, I said in response. Tony squatted on the edge of a white flouncy divan. Hard to describe how he squats like that. Imagine a seven-foot store mannequin folding into itself, like a kid hugging both legs to his chest. Can we go now, he whined. I touched a pressure sensor, and the closet became a wall once more. Just a sec, I said. Thought I'd do some calling from here, in case of a trace. Tony moaned in moral agony. He really isn't cut out for this line of work. You stay here. I'll be back in a sec. I headed for the bathroom. It's the only way I can get rid of him. Otherwise, he clunks after me like a seven-foot shadow. Not that I'm complaining. It's his job. But whenever I want to be alone for a minute, which is often, I head for the nearest loo. All robots must have a ridiculous view of the capacity of human bladders. The bathroom was surprisingly modest compared to the rest of the condo. No bronze dolphins or tropical plants, just marble. I sat on the throne, flipped open my cell, and punched a number. One not on Beckwith's list. Reynolds, got time for a quickie? I tried to sound sultry. Hiya, babe. Always time for that, he said. Tonight's still on? Still on, I said to my favorite cop. Look, Pete, I've got a missing person, a special one. Think cover girl, front page of every magazine in the country, if this gets out. Can you do me a check? Female human, about 27, 5'10", ultra slim, shoulder-length black hair, green eyes. Missing for how long, he asked. A week at least. We don't know for sure. Husband just got back and found her gone. So, why aren't you checking motels? I grinned. Want to help? He laughed, and my heart did a flip. Didn't see that one coming, beautiful. But you betcha, tonight at seven, I'll check out the morgue on the way over. Pete, you're the greatest, I said. 
You ain't seen nothing yet. I was still grinning as the phone went dead. Dead. Well, she could be dead, but I doubted it. Chances are Pete would draw a blank at the morgue. This case smelled of something else, high-priced perfume and the rag trade. I pulled the list from my pocket. Mr. Military had gone to some length, literally. Work numbers listed first, but I bypassed those. High-priced agencies don't release info without six lawyers and a press conference. Next came the relatives. Possibilities here, but not the first choice. There are advantages to being a woman in this trade, knowing how the female mind works, for one thing. If I were Inez Ortsi, about to skip town, whom would I trust with the information? My mother-in-law? Not bloody likely. According to the list, Inez's best friend was another model named Alison Davol. Luckily, Alison hadn't skipped town with her boyfriend. "'Who are you?' suspicion leaked from her voice. "'Mel Ramon,' I said. "'Colonel Beckwith has employed me to locate his wife. "'Apparently he came into town yesterday and found her missing.' "'Damn!' she exclaimed. "'What is he doing back so soon?' "'My nose started to twitch. "'Soon?' I said. "'I thought he'd been away for a year.' "'But he wasn't due back till next week Friday.' "'My pulse shot up. "'Do you know where she is?' "'Silence.' I tried again. He's really worried. Do you think you could get in touch with her? A pause. What did you say your name was again? I gave her that and my number and sat back on the marble throne to think. Like all nights spent with Pete, morning came too soon. Unfortunately, it wasn't Pete who woke me up. You didn't call. You said you'd call. I was worried. Tony's expressionless face loomed from the doorway. I groaned. What time is it? 8 a.m., 9.30 in Newfoundland. But you've already had three calls, but she wouldn't leave a message. I sat up suspicious. How did you get in, Tony? I overrode the security codes, but don't worry, I reset everything. Luckily, the phone rang. We both ran for the receivers. Is this Mel Ramon? Yep, I answered before Tony could. This is Inez Ortsy speaking. Hold it. I grabbed my bra and shirt from last night and tried to dress with one hand. Hold it right there. Where are you? A contralto voice at the other end sighed. Are you alone? Yes, I said. No, Tony said. I cursed out loud. That was my robot. She continued without missing a beat. Is Brian with you? Brian? I went blank. My husband, she said. No. She gave me an address and told me to ask for her at the desk. It was a big desk, not the sort of desk you find at a posh hotel either. This one was staffed by a sergeant major of a woman, dressed in white. Easy chairs littered the foyer. There had been no sign on the building and there was no sign over the desk. It was stark and unwelcoming. I said Inez Ortsi was expecting me. The desk major picked up a phone and spoke quietly into it. Tony fidgeted at my side, visibly nervous. He hates hospitals, laboratories, or anything to do with people in lab coats, people who might be robotics technicians. 
I don't blame him. I had the same feeling about this place. Room 160, four doors to your left, that way. She pointed me and we obeyed. The corridor was quiet and vacant. I glanced at Tony as he plodded along, turning his head this way and that. What is it, Tony? What is this place? I don't know, he sounded nervous. I can't conclude. A clinic of some sort, perhaps a sanatorium, but no visible guards, no weaponry, no hidden surveillance, some electronic activity, but not the level of... I shushed him when we arrived at the door and knocked. Who is it? Miss Orchie, it's Mel Ramon. Come in, she said, and shut the door behind you. The room inside was equally stark but bright. Light flooded in from the sliding glass doors. Inez Orsi stood framed in the sunshine, a dark silhouette. She looked like her photos, only more. The famous aristocratic bones had some padding. She smiled sweetly. So you've discovered my secret, she said sadly. The lone figure walked away from the window and settled on a nearby tub chair. Have a seat. Your husband is very worried about you, I stammered. She sighed. Poor Brian. He has no imagination. You've met him. You know what he's like. You'll understand why I had to do this in secret. I think so, I said slowly. Tony swung his head in my direction, questioning. I threw him a comfort glance and waited. She got up and started to pace. The perfect model, she said. Every measurement scientifically designed and crafted for the specific purpose of selling clothes. The perfect marketing combination, impossible to achieve with the human body. I am a scientific masterpiece, she said bitterly, the first of many to come. Amazing. I looked her over, incredulous. I did the Paris and Milan shows my very first year. Shot a cover with Vogue and kept going. Married Brian, and believe it or not, we've been happy. He doesn't want children, luckily. I checked that out before. It was only fair. Of course, he's off-planet a lot, and I have my career until now. But who would have ever guessed that Skinny would go out and the healthy bosom look would come in? Her voice held a remarkably human wail. The bookings have suddenly dried up. My agent says I've got to gain weight or I'm finished. Eat more, she says, as if that were easy. No, they don't know I'm manufactured. Neither does Brian, and I can't tell them. It was part of the contract. Contract? My throat felt dry. She nodded. Top secret. I'm a test case. This is big business. No kidding, I thought. Big business, big bucks. I could see the potential. Talk about scientific breakthroughs. Tony looked like a kid's Meccano project next to Inez. Why a model, I asked. She shrugged. In the public eye, not a lot of personality requirements, although I think I excel there. Ideal for a trial run and no damage if I slip up. Models come and go, so I can be removed at any time. The room chilled. 
I caught a whiff of the future, and it wasn't pleasant. How many more Inezes were there out there already? I fingered the list of phone numbers in my purse. Your friends? She shook her head. They don't know. Allison thinks I'm in for cosmetic surgery, which is sort of true. Inez, a slightly filled out and even more beautiful Inez, reached out her hands and pleaded. Brian wasn't due back until next Friday, and I undergo breast implants tomorrow. You've got to help me. He can't know where I am. Not until Friday at the earliest. I frowned. He's pretty frantic. We'll have to tell him something. She threw up her hands and paced the floor. Tell him anything. I don't care. Anything but this. I know. Tell him I'm having an affair. That's it. That's perfect. I can manage a jealous husband, she said triumphantly. I can handle that no problem. I just can't deal with the truth. She was still pacing the floor when we left. I don't understand it, Melly. I don't understand it at all. Tony ambled along the corridor beside me. "'You mean why we tell Colonel Beckwith about his wife's affair, the one she isn't having? "'We're confirming his worst nightmare, Milly, and it isn't true.' "'I grimaced as we walked out of the oppressive foyer into the direct sunlight. "'Sometimes what you think is your worst nightmare isn't. "'Which reminds me.' "'I took a deep breath and tried not to think of my mother. "'Tony?' "'Yes?' Don't call me, Melly. Okay, dear. Watch the curb. And that has been Cover Girl by Melody Campbell, Canada's queen of comedy. And now I'm delighted to bring you our interview with Kate Raphael. Kate is a San Francisco Bay Area writer, feminist and queer activist, and radio journalist who makes her living as a law firm word processor. She lived in Palestine for 18 months as a member of the International Women's Peace Service, documenting human rights abuses and accompanying Palestinians as they attempted to live normal lives under occupation. At the end of her time in Palestine, she was imprisoned for over a month by the Israeli authorities and eventually deported. In 2011, she won a residency at Hedgebrook. She produces the weekly radio show Women's Magazine on KPFA Pacifica, which is heard throughout Northern and Central California. Her writing from Palestine has been published in the anthology Peace Under Fire, Verso, Reclaiming Quarterly, and Left Turn. And she is the author of Murder Under the Bridge, a Palestine interview. So please give a big dead to rights welcome to Kate Raphael. Good morning, Kate. Welcome to Dead to Rights. It's Donna Carrick. How are you today? I'm good. Good. Can you hear me okay? I certainly can, yes. I think we had a little mishap with the phone. I'm not sure what happened, but I'm glad we're connected uh, yeah, now. Yeah, that was my fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like, you know, just dropped the phone, essentially. Oh, well, that <laughs> happens, the doesn't it? And then I accidentally hit it again, and it dropped the call. Yeah, yeah. So you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, is that right? That's correct. And how is your weather on this lovely uh, pre-Easter morning? It's actually really beautiful. Oh. The last few days have been really warm and oh, that's, gorgeous. That's so nice. I'm here in Canada, so I love hearing about this kind of thing. <laughs> it's 
snowing? No, it's not snowing. Actually, it's pretty good weather for here. Um, but it's it's cool. You know, we're not sitting out on the deck. Let's put it that way. No. Yeah. Well, I'll sit out on my deck for you. Okay, thank you. So for those who don't know, Kate Raphael is a mystery writer, and um, she's got an MA in political sciences at UC Berkeley, so that's kind of interesting. And you've also lived in Palestine for 18 months. Um, with, you were with the International Women's Peace Service, is that right? That's correct. Wow. Was that before or after you started writing mysteries? Well, I had written part of a mystery some years before I went, and it just didn't come together. I abandoned it about halfway through and decided maybe I just didn't quite have what it took to put all the clues and sort of keep the plot going and have interesting characters. And, you know, mysteries are very complicated, and I started doing some other kinds of writing, and so then I didn't start mystery writing again until late in my time in Palestine I saw a scene that seemed like it would be a good opening for a mystery and that just sort of led me down that path. What was the scene? Can you tell? Yeah, sure. I was riding with some friends at night. We had been called by um, another people in another village because the army was, the Israeli army was in their village and they were concerned about what might happen and wanted us to come. So we were riding on a Palestinian road that passes under a road that's close to Palestinians that only Israelis and Israeli settlers and Israeli licensed cars are allowed to go on. And I looked up on that road and I saw what looked to be an abandoned car and there were some police up there. and. This is an area that's very interesting because it's very close to the Israeli border. So a lot of Palestinians would cross into Israel there, would use it to cross illegally into Israel to go to work. And Israeli peace activists would also use it to come into the West Bank to engage in solidarity activities and meet with Palestinians and go to demonstrations against things that the army was doing. It's an area that has, it, it has a lot of farmland, so farmers would be working, Palestinian farmers would be working, but there are also a lot of Israeli settlers in the area, and the army is there a lot because it's so close to the border. So mm -hmm. it just seemed like a very ripe place to begin a mystery, to set a mystery, because there are so many different kinds of people interacting there. Yeah, that was exactly the word I was going to choose, a uh, right place to, uh, uh, just rife with all kinds of uh, characters and backgrounds and, and uh, possible situations, eh? Exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it worked out pretty well. I think really that above all other things, places can really inspire us to write. Um, that's been something that people have said to me a few times, and uh, I've certainly found it to be true myself. I, and I also think sometimes like we know we want to write, we know basically what we want to write, but when we're very young, sometimes we don't really have the sense of what we've got to say, you know, what we really bring to the table or to the page. And with a little more maturity and a little more experience, 
sometimes it can really flow. I think that's right, and I think sometimes, you know, writing is a skill. I mean, it takes a lot of different things. It takes discipline. I guess it takes some form of talent, but fundamentally it's a skill, and you have to practice it to Mm -hmm. get better at it, and mystery writing is a particular kind of skill, and one that it just doesn't come from nowhere, and I think that sometimes those of us who have been writing since we were little, and certainly I always wanted to write, you know, might think that just because we know how to scribble in a journal that that means we know how to write a certain kind of story, and I mean, you have to study it, you have to practice it, you have to work on it like anything else. Yes, yes. The plotting and the clue placement and things like that are all very um, very particular to that, that specific kind of writing. Now, on top of that, you've got different layers in your mysteries, too. Um, I, I, when I was researching you online, I see that uh, your fiction is uh, involved with gay and lesbian um, fiction. Is that true? Yeah, I mean... I am a lesbian, and I always promised myself that I would never write anything that didn't have lesbian content. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably an exaggeration, but because certainly I've written articles, but that my fiction would always have queer people in it, but not necessarily in a situation where that's the main thing that's going on or that's the main issue. And yeah. Yeah, it's just just the just the character, right? Like just exactly. The... I mean, I just want us to be represented as doing everything that anybody else does, and you know, yeah. we don't spend all of our time thinking about being gay, but we're always there. Yeah, it's just a factor. Like we all have factors in our lives, and that's who we exactly. are. It's all part of the fabric of the character, and um, it's so important to be true to your characters. You know, right. Mm-hmm. And true to ourselves, I think. As yeah, a well, I think they kind of go hand in hand, you know. If if we're really doing it that way, it, it does go hand in hand, you know. Um, I'll give you an example. I can write um, a character that doesn't seem anything like me, but you know that intrinsically that character is going to really represent aspects of me that maybe other people don't even know or recognize, but it's there, you know. Yeah, I was saying, you know how they say all the characters in your dreams are yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think all the characters in your novels are yourself also. Yeah, and we have to be very... Because they come out of us. That's right, and we have to be very careful to cultivate them and give them their own voices because it's true, when they're first born, these characters, they really do represent us, and I think that's part of the art is cultivating them into individuals that are unique. Yeah, and that that was definitely the hardest thing because I have two women protagonists and they, at the beginning of the book, they meet for the first time, of the first book, Murder Under the Bridge, they're meeting for the first time and they don't know each other, obviously, since they're meeting for the first time, you know, but they don't really recognize each other. They're not people that each other have come into contact with or a type of person that they've necessarily come into contact with. They both have reasons to suspect each other, but they're attracted to each other. And part of the attraction is based on certain things they have in common. Mm -hmm. But when my first draft readers or 
the readers of the first draft that I gave people to read, which of course wasn't the first draft that I wrote, you know, some of them yeah. said they seemed too similar. Yeah. And so I really had to work on getting their characters to come through, allowing them to become aspects of myself and other people that I was influenced by, but to go in their own direction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the titles are great, Murder Under the Bridge and Murder Under the Fig Tree. I, I really like those. They're very intriguing and um, kind of, uh, I think, deceptive in the simplicity of the titles, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I insist on using a Palestine mystery as the subtitle for all of these books because I want the word Palestine to be out there and I want people to think, oh, Palestine, I don't know anything about that. Maybe this is interesting. But I wanted the titles to convey a very clear sense of a place. Mm-hmm. And as you say, I mean, you know, I think to say that a mystery or any book is place-based is a little bit like saying it's character-based. Like, of course, it's yes, it's place-based. Every story takes place in a place, just as every story has characters, and those have to be central to all fiction. But, you know, I think there are certain kinds of mysteries that they might be set in Chicago and use Chicago details, but they could fairly easily be transplanted to Denver and have different landmarks, but essentially the story wouldn't change. That's not true for my books. My books couldn't be written about any other place on Earth than Palestine. So I really want the sense that this is about a place to be very clear from Mm -hmm. the titles and the covers. And I feel like the cover artist that she writes press uses does such a great job of of coming up with images that really convey that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. So Murder Under the Bridge and Murder Under the Fig Tree, for our listeners, go and look for those books. Um, they're both subtitled A Palestine Mystery, and uh, they really do look very intriguing, Kate. Now, I see here, too, that you were actually imprisoned at, at one point. Can you tell us about that? Is it something you can talk about? Oh, yeah, Sure. So, I mean, I was in Palestine doing human rights work. That's what took me there, and that's what the International Women's Peace Service does. And the Israeli government, which just yesterday shot and killed killed at least 13 unarmed protesters on the border with Gaza and injured over 1,000 people, is not very interested in having foreigners observing what they're doing from a human rights standpoint because they're not very respectful of human rights. And so they are often looking to arrest and deport people who are doing what I was doing. And that's what happened to me. But at the time that I was arrested, I was actually arrested twice, once in late 2003 and then almost exactly one year later in late 2004. I spent two consecutive New Year's in Israeli jails. And the second time that I was arrested, I had planned on leaving anyway. My commitment to the International Women's Peace Service was up, and I had planned to be leaving in about a month, 
so my visa was valid for another month, and so I really felt that they didn't have a justification for arresting me. I hadn't been doing anything illegal, and I wasn't in Israel. I was on Palestinian land. I had a letter of invitation from the Palestinian Authority, you know, inviting me to be mm-hmm. there. So I felt that I should contest it, and so Israel. One of the things about the Israeli government is that they like everything to be very legal. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they could just say no, we're deporting you anyway. But they chose to. They set the hearing on my for my appeal on the day after my visa expired, so oh. that then they could say, oh well, we're deporting you because you don't have a valid visa. Yeah. So that's yeah. why I was in prison for about a month. It was a special prison that had been built just for immigrant workers, basically, for foreign workers, of which there are many in Israel, and there were more at that time. Many of them had been trafficked in some form or other that is either brought under false pretenses or brought by force, or they were forced into sex work, or they hadn't been paid, you know, so... I learned a lot of those stories, even though, I mean, my Hebrew wasn't very good, and most of the women did not speak English, so we had had to figure out how to communicate, but I was able to talk to many of them in one form or another, one language or another, and I heard a lot of their stories, and a lot of those, actually, that's where the subplot of Murder Under the Bridge, which is about trafficking of foreign workers mm-hmm. came from, you know, was inspired by hearing those stories. Yeah, yeah. So there's a really strong human rights bent to to your work, really, isn't there? And you also produce a weekly radio show, Women's Magazine. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I started doing that also when I came back from Palestine in 2005. And Initially, I just thought that I would do one interview with a Palestinian lesbian, and then I just loved it. I loved talking to people, hearing them talk about their lives and their work, and I liked the technical aspect of editing and sort of taking an interview that might be all over the place and shaping it into something that really moves. It's kind of a lot like writing, and so I've been doing it now for... Um, I guess 15 years and I we are a weekly magazine show so that means we usually have several different features in in an hour show you know maybe one piece about a very serious international issue and one about a movie that's going to be playing or a play or you know something a little more fun and um Sometimes I just interview women about their lives, especially I love to interview older feminists who have had some of them such amazing lives and been so important to building the women's movement. Mm -hmm. And um, I've interviewed women from Syria. I've interviewed women from Bolivia. Um, I interviewed women from next door. Oh, that's fascinating. I I love that. love doing it. Yeah, because I've only been doing this since the beginning of this year. But the thing that thrills me about it is reaching out to people that I've never met, like yourself, and just finding out what motivates your work, 
what your passions are. I mean, it's absolutely thrilling to me. So I can see why you got addicted to doing it for sure. And talking to writers is definitely one of my favorite forms of interview because we just have so much to talk about and it's so interesting to hear about people's processes and how they, you know, how they write, how they get published, how they keep going, how they deal with rejection, all of that. I feel like I learn so much and I also think that the listeners gain a lot, you know, whenever there's a good rapport between me and the guests, then that makes it very yes. engaging. Yes, that makes it all the more fun, for sure. And and the thing is, writers in particular are people who live to express themselves. I mean, it's what they want to do more than anything else. So when you get a writer on the phone who's keen to talk about his or her work, I mean, it's just terrific, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it brings a smile to my face, that's for sure. So I can see why you like doing it. Now, if somebody were in uh, northern and central, Cal- northern or central California, how could they listen to your radio show? What would they tune into? Well, if they're in northern or central California, we're 94.1 KPFA. Although I think that there are, we have some relay stations in parts of the state, so the call numbers might be a little different, but it's always KPFA. And we're also online at kpfa.org, so anyone anywhere can tune in and listen live or listen in the archives. Our shows, All of our shows are archived on our page at kpfa.org, and we also have a blog, kpfawomensmag.blogspot.com, that, um, where we archive the segments each segment individually so people can click on, you know, if you see an interview with Alicia Garza and that's something that you're interested in, you can just listen to. Just say that that website one more time, Kate, if you don't mind, just so our listeners can can glom onto it. Sure. kpfawomensmag.blogspot.com Perfect. Thank you very much. Yes. And thanks for coming on the show, too. I really, uh, I'm honored to have someone with your, your background in human rights work on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. Yeah, it has. Now stay on the line. I'm going to stop the recording. I want to thank Kate Raphael for joining us today on the Dead to Rights podcast. If you're a published author and would like to be featured on Dead to Rights, please email me, Donna Carrick, at carrickpublishing at rogers.com. And in the subject line, please mention Dead to Rights interview. I still have a couple of slots left for 2018, and after those are filled, I'll be looking for authors to fill 2019 weekly slots. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page, Dead to Rights. On Twitter, we're listed as at Dead to Rights Pod, and Rights, of course, is spelled W-R-I-T-E-S. Don't hesitate to reach out to us anytime. You can find me, Donna Carrick, at DonnaCarrick.com, or on Facebook under Donna Carrick, or Carrick Publishing. My Twitter handle is at Donna underscore Carrick, or at Carrick Pub. My husband, Alec Carrick, is at alexcarrick.com, and that's A-L-E-X Carrick.com, or on Facebook. You can tweet with him at Alex underscore Carrick.
Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by our son, Ted Carrick, as is all other story scoring music. You can tweet with Ted at Ted Carrick or follow his YouTube channel, Ted Carrick Music. Be sure to tune in next week for our interview with Joan Hicks Boone, the author of Best Girl, and my short story, Axe Husband, which I'll all enjoy bringing to you. Have a great week, and we're looking forward to seeing you next time on Dead to Rights, the podcast for writers and readers.